Our sermon text this morning, we're continuing our study of 1 Timothy, and we're going to look at 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 10. We, we started to kind of unpack that passage last Sunday, and we're going to continue that this morning. We're going to focus on verses 7 through 8, but for the sake of context, we're going to read verses 6 through 10. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, and I'm reading from the ESV translation. Give ear to the word of God today. It says, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people or all men, uh, especially of those who believe. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, again, this morning we are continuing our study through the book of First Timothy, uh, and we are examining some of the things that Paul tells Timothy there in verses 6 through 10, uh, his instructions there where he teaches Timothy and us uh, what it looks like or what's required in order for a man, a pastor, to be truly be, quote, a good servant of Christ Jesus. He's He's giving Timothy a description of what that looks like and what it, what it means to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, uh, and particularly as a as a pastor. Uh, last Sunday we focused mo- most of our attention on verse six, where Paul admonished Timothy about the vital importance of a pastor's teaching ministry, as well as his own personal nourishment in the faith. He tells Timothy there that a good a good pastor, a faithful pastor, must set or place. Before the people of God, the brothers there, the truth of God, he has to make the whole counsel of God known. Uh, He must remind the brothers uh, there at the church often uh, of the essential truths of the gospel of Christ and of the Christian faith. You know, uh, in a lot of ways, the teaching ministry of a church, of a faithful biblical church, involves a lot of repetition, a lot of reminding the saints of what they've already been taught and the truths in which they've already been established and so that uh, that may seem tedious at times to some, and maybe even some in the ministry think of it that way, but it shouldn't be the case to think of it that way. It, it's just a part of godly ministry. And then the, the next thing is he also must be someone who has been nourished in the faith. In other words, Paul tells Timothy that he has to see to it that he himself, Timothy, and any godly pastor, remains a diligent student of the Word of God as well as a diligent and faithful teacher. You really can't have one without the other. Well, here in verses 7 to 8 this morning, Paul continues that same line of thought. He's still sort of describing or defining for us what a good servant of Christ looks like, uh, what, what he is, what he is like in his ministry. And here he contrasts that kind of teaching that a pastor must studiously avoid with what he says back in verse 6 when he talks about the words of faith and the good doctrine that Timothy had followed and had been reared up in in the faith, he tells Timothy here, you know, here's what you avoid. He says, have nothing, verse 7, have nothing to do with the irreverent, uh, with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And notice, notice here in our passage in verses 7 through 8 that Paul contrasts irre- irreverent, almost said irrelevant, 
He contrasts irreverent, silly myths. Uh, the King James puts it as profane and old wives' fables, old wives' tales. Uh, he doesn't just contrast those with the words of faith and of good doctrine, although that's true. He also contrasts that with what he talks about in verse 7, with training oneself for godliness. So irreverent, silly myths or profane old wives' tables, those are contrary to training oneself in godliness. They don't tend toward that. You know, there is a certain kind of teaching or doctrine, uh, and there always has been, that kind of comes in the guise of Christian teaching, but simply isn't that. And uh, one of the telltale signs by which false teaching of this kind may be recognized is that, simply put, it is not in accord with godliness. It does not tend toward godliness in the lives of God's people. It doesn't tend, it doesn't tend toward Christian edification or growth in godliness or sanctification. The truths of the gospel do tend towards those things. The other things, these silly myths and profane old wives tables, so fables so-called, uh, they do not tend toward those things. And so Paul tells Timothy here in our text, and he tells us through him, uh, to train himself for godliness. And so I hope this morning to see a few things, at least three things from our text today. First, we want to look at what godliness is. You know, it's very helpful for us to define our terms. It's easy to use words like godliness in kind of a loose way and not really have a concrete biblical definition in our minds when we use it. So we want to look at what it, what he's talking about. What is godliness, the priority of godliness as our aim? The second thing we want to look at is what it means to train ourselves uh, for such godliness and that would be the pursuit of godliness. So the priority of godliness, the pursuit of godliness. And thirdly, we want to see why godliness is so uh, important for every pastor and indeed every Christian, every believer in Christ. Paul here speaks in our text of godliness having a promise. He talks about the, the promise of life. So we want to see the priority of godliness, the pursuit of godliness, and the promise of godliness in verse 8. So the first thing in our text we want to look at today briefly is the priority of godliness as the aim of every Christian. Um, what What is godliness? It's, again, it's a word we use a lot. It's kind of like grace. We throw these words around casually without often uh, defining them or, or understanding for fully what they mean. Now, it's think about this. It's certainly difficult to aim at godliness or to make that our pursuit or goal if we don't know what the word means and if we don't know what it is that we are aiming for. Uh, the Greek word that Paul uses here for godliness is found only 15 times in the entire New Testament, and no less than eight of those times are found in 1 Timothy. So over half of the brief, the, you know, the small number of instances where this is found in the New Testament is found, uh, they are found in 1 Timothy. There's two more in the books of 2 Timothy and Titus combined. So you think about it that way, we have at least 10 times out of the 15 uses of this word are found in the pastoral epistles. That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Clearly, when you notice how many times Paul uses it in 1 Timothy in particular, I think it's clear to say, it's safe to say that godliness is a common and even a central theme, a key theme in Paul's first letter to Timothy here. And so looking at those kind of briefly, uh, going through them just to point them out, 1 Timothy 2 verse 2, Paul there tells us and tells Timothy that we are to, quote, pray for all, for kings 
and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Uh, literally, he's saying, in all godliness. So it's the same exact word there, same form of it, that we are to pray for kings, those who are in authority. This, I think, is something we should be doing much more of, and maybe our present circumstances are teaching us that more, to pray for those who are God has placed in authority. Why? That we might lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That is what we are to do. First Timothy 3.16, we looked at that a number of Sundays ago. Paul talks there of the great mystery of what? The great mystery of godliness. And that mystery of godliness is all centered on the person and work of Christ. If you look at 1 Timothy 3.16 there uh, on your own. Also in our text, Paul uses the word twice. He uses the word godliness twice in verses 7 through 8. He tells Timothy to train himself for godliness or train himself unto godliness. And he also assures Timothy in, in making that exhortation to him that that godliness that he was pressing him to, to pursue was of value in every way. He says godliness is of value in every way or in all things. Well, then later on in chapter 6, Paul uses the word godliness four more times, reminding Timothy that true Christian teaching, verse 3, must accord with godliness. That is one of the ways that we can judge so in a way of speaking, the veracity of Christian teaching, whether something that, that purports to be Christian teaching really is, is whether or not it is in accord with godliness. You know, things, just to throw a few things out there, you think of antinomianism, this neglect of God's law, that would be uh, against godliness. We think of false gospels. You know, there, there's no such thing as godliness or good works or obedience outside of justification by faith. If you're not justified by faith alone and Christ alone, by God's grace alone, uh, we saw from our study of the Belgian Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism and other things as well, that it means that good works, really good works, are impossible. Because if, you do, if you're not justified by faith, what does it mean? It means that you are doing good works for your own, for your own gain. You're doing them in order to try to save yourself. Well, that, that makes it not about God or pleasing Him at all. It makes it about your own, your own gain. Uh, Paul uses that word again four times in our in our in, our, in chapter six. Uh, he says also in verse five there in chapter six that some false teachers imagined that godliness was a means of gain. They looked at godliness as a means to an end, as a means to we, we almost have to assume he's talking about some kind of financial gain in that. And then he tells Timothy that true pastors must rest content with the knowledge that quote verse six. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We don't make godliness an, an, a means to an end, certainly not a means to an end of uh, financial gain and prosperity, as many, even in our day, seem to try to do. So we see that's a common theme, a key theme in this letter. In verse 11 there of chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy that he must flee, flee the love of money, and pursue righteousness, and here it is, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. He has to pursue those things as a pastor and as a Christian, and one of those things that he has to pursue to chase after is godliness. Godliness is to be the active aim or pursuit of every pastor and of every Christian generally. It must be our priority as Christians as, and as also as pastors, those of us who are in ministry, to pursue godliness. 
kind of sounds like Paul is trying to impress upon us and upon Timothy the great importance of godliness, doesn't it? But what is it? What is godliness? Uh, what is this godliness that you and I are to pursue and which is so important in the life and ministry of every true faithful pastor? John Calvin, uh, commenting on this text, writes the following. He says, by the word godliness, he means the spiritual worship of God, which is found only in a pure conscience. I'll repeat that. By the word godliness, he, Paul, means the spiritual worship of God, which is found only in a pure conscience. And so it means worship. We think of worship, we think of what we're doing right now on the Lord's Day, and it does include that. It includes both private and public worship of God in the Spirit of God, but it also has to be combined with a pure conscience, following God's commandments sincerely by the work of the Spirit. Uh, In this text, Calvin contrasts true godliness with that which consists of mere external or outward rituals or observances. He contrasts those two things. Paul himself, in a previous passage in this book, spoke of examples of biblical, of unbiblical rather, practices of asceticism back in 1 Timothy 4.3, earlier in this chapter, when he spoke of some false teachers who were forbidding marriage and were requiring abstinence from certain foods or meats, as if true piety and religion were to be found in those kinds of ascetic practices, and Paul condemns those things. He refutes those ideas. So Timothy was to reject all manner, all kind of profane old wives' tables, fables, I keep saying tables, uh, old wives' fables that led to superstition and hypocrisy rather than to true godliness. Those, those two things are kind of the mirror opposites or the polar opposites in a sense. You can either have superstition and hypocrisy or you can have true godliness. Those two things are mutually exclusive. And so true godliness means not just inward piety or emotional experiences. It means worshiping God in spirit and in truth, John 4.24. It means worshiping God sincerely, inwardly, and in accordance with the word of God, not just in religious exercises on the Lord's Day, even in public worship, but it also has to do with our day-to-day lives. It means not just being a Sunday morning Christian, but an everyday Christian Our sincere worship of God must be reflected in how we live our day-to-day lives. And so without a pure conscience, sincerely, even if imperfectly following the Lord, our worship is mere formality and superstition. And on top of that, any ministry that flows from such pretended piety will be of no good, of no lasting effect, regardless of whatever outward signs of apparent success there may be attached to it. You know, all too often, I think, worldly thinking creeps into our view of a lot of things, even such things as gospel ministry. And we begin, I think, to place far too much emphasis and importance on things like personality. You know, a strong personality of a pastor in a pulpit. Uh, We often, I think, uh, put too much emphasis on a certain perception of giftedness in ministry, in our pastors and elders. Not that giftedness is not important, but sometimes I think we make that the main thing. And yet, what does Paul and the rest of the scriptures constantly and consistently stress and emphasize? Does the Apostle Paul not rather consistently emphasize the importance of faithfulness over success and of godliness over giftedness? How much harm has been done down through the ages of the church And how many scandals have come to bring disrepute on the gospel ministry 
by overvaluing certain personalities and giftedness over faithfulness and godliness. How many ministry figures have been deemed too big to fail or too essential to the, to the success of a church or ministry so that their moral failings and even their gross disqualifying sins are too often glossed over or covered up? It's because we have a wrong view very often of ministry and of what we might call success in ministry. We look at, at big personalities. We look at people that seem very, very gifted in communicating. And we think that is the most important thing, whereas faithfulness to God and his word and godliness are really what's needed and what God truly blesses in any church, in any ministry. Shall we expect God's blessing upon a ministry that is focused upon personality or giftedness apart from godliness and faithfulness. Godliness is essential to any pastor's ministry. We may expect no blessing from God in ministry apart from it. Well, that brings us to the second thing in our text, and that isn't just the the, uh, priority of godliness, but the pursuit of godliness. Uh, The pursuit of godliness, Paul tells Timothy there in verse Eight, that he must, what does he say, train himself, train himself unto godliness. Verse seven, what does that mean? What does it mean to train oneself for godliness? The, the word that Paul uses for train there, uh, you may know is the same word that we get the English word gymnasium from. It sounds like growth in godliness takes some sustained effort and intentionality on our parts. And I think that is what we should take from that. What does it mean? What does it mean for a person, for a Christian to train himself unto godliness? Well, the first thing that we should note here is that, uh, is that just as we saw earlier, godliness in a lot of ways is the goal of the Christian life. It's not a means to an end. It's the goal itself. Our goal must not be as Christians, our goal cannot be mere religious knowledge. It cannot and should not be religious experiences or feelings. Our goal should be godliness, being conformed to the image of Christ in our lives. It means learning to live out what we profess to believe. It means seeking to live by faith in God's promises in the gospel and to walk according to his commandments in all that we do. Now, you might notice in our text, you know, Paul doesn't really give us a program, does he? We, we, I don't know about you, I like steps. I like to-do lists. I would prefer if Paul would just say, here's how you do it, step one, step two, step three, and then you can check that box. But he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't give us a program to follow or a set of instructions or a to-do list. He doesn't give us much of the how-to at all. What he does is he simply gives us the what of godliness and expects us to understand what he's talking about and what we are to pursue but what he does do is, is warn us to avoid or reject certain things that don't tend toward it. Just as in verse 6, Paul mentions to Timothy the words of faith and of the good doctrine that he had followed and been nourished in, in the gospel, that just as that will tend towards nourishing us in the faith and helping us to grow in godliness, even so he tells us and tells Timothy to avoid false teaching. He must Reject or not follow irreverent or profane silly myths or old wives' fables, which may give the false impression of appear or appearance of growth or knowledge. 
you know, it, Paul doesn't, uh, obviously in our text, doesn't tell us what those myths were, what those old wives' fables were that he had in mind, but we can sure that they were not in accordance with the truth of the gospel, and they were not in accordance with godliness itself. And so I think we can give a few brief uh, notes about this kind of, of teaching, whatever form such false teaching may take, it will, I think, invariably in some way lead us away from or tend to lead us away from the simplicity that is to be found in faith in Christ. It will tend towards speculative, doubtful things, even towards things that puff one up with pride at knowing what others have not attained. That's kind of a Gnostic tendency that's always been around and I think was is behind some of what we see earlier in this book, uh, the things that Paul warns Timothy about. But I think in a lot of ways, it these things will tend away from Christ, away from simple faith in Christ, and they'll they'll get us to put kind of put our faith in and trust in something of our own thinking or doing. And so, rather than expending our energy and efforts on those kinds of things, we are to Paul says train ourselves or exercise ourselves unto godliness. That's where our effort is to be focused and spent. Now. Do we make that our goal? Is that is that the main thing that we as Christians seek to make as our aim in life in all that we do? Do you as a Christian this morning, do you make that your goal as a believer in Christ, that you might grow in godliness and sanctification in Christ? That should be our goal. I think it's easy to think that uh, this is just Paul tell, telling Timothy, you know, this is one of those temptations uh, as we go through a book like this where Paul is talking, you know, what's the title of the book? First Timothy. Paul is writing an epistle to an individual, not that he doesn't have the church in mind as well, but, which he certainly does. And I, I believe we can say that Paul intended this letter to be read to the church. Uh, but I think it's easy for us to, to read a book like this. Maybe, you're, maybe your mind is working like this as we're going through it, and you might say, you know, Paul's writing these instructions to a pastor. You know, Pastor Andy, I, I'm never going to be a pastor or an elder, you might say to yourself. And so, you know, you might say to yourself, this is important for you. You know, pre- heal thyself. You know, you pastor preaches to yourself, and I certainly do hope to be doing that as well, preaching to myself first and foremost. Uh, but it's, we, it's easy to be tempted, I think, if you think that, well, I'm not going to be a pastor, I'm never going to be a pastor, so this is important for pastors, but not for people like me, not for us called regular Christians. Uh, but to that I would ask, are pastors not regular Christians too? Every pastor must be a Christian first and a pastor second or third. And remember what we saw back in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, where we looked together a number of, of months ago, really, uh, at what Paul says about the biblical qualifications for pastor and elder, or elder and deacon, rather, uh, what did we say about those things? What, what was the most common thing about those lists of qualifications is that they, were, they, they mainly consisted of godly character traits. Godly character was, the, was most of what was involved there. And at the time, if you were with us at that time, you might remember that we said those very same godly character traits are certainly to be true of every Christian. They are to be true of every sincere Christian. So, well, the same is true with what Paul says about godliness here. Godliness in Jesus Christ is to be the aim and goal of every sincere Christian, but for that very reason, it's also indispensable for every faithful pastor. Every Christian should pursue godliness in our lives, and that goes doubly, in a sense, for every every pastor. Well, that leads us briefly, lastly, to the third thing, we see here in our text, and that is the promise 
of godliness. So not just the priority of godliness, not just the pursuit of it, which we are to make our, our aim in life, but also the promise of godliness. You know, God gives us promises to help us, to encourage us in our following of him and seeking to do his will in our lives. Look at verse 8. Paul tells us that godliness holds a promise of sorts, a promise of blessing. Look at verse 8. It says, he says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, here Paul compares the effort involved in growing in godliness to that of an athlete training for or, com- for or competing in the Olympic Games. And he does so by way of an argument. Uh, we call this an argument from the lesser to the greater, doesn't he? Now, you might say to yourself, that's a strange argument to make from lesser to the greater when you've got, you know, you think of an Olympic athlete or something like that. So that's a pretty intense uh, thing. It's a pretty intense uh, type of, of bodily training. But he tells us here that bodily training, you know, physical exercise, is of some value. A more literal way of putting that would be to say that it's of little value. I don't think he's deprecating it. He's just saying, he's comparing the two. He's saying bodily training, it might help you in some ways, but it's a very little value in, in light of eternity. He says, and so while in many ways in our day, people might place a great emphasis on physical exercise and fitness, and nothing wrong with that per se, it does have its benefits for a time. But what Paul is saying, godliness is a far, far greater value. Paul says here that in verse 8, in the King James, he says it, I like the way the King James puts it, it says, godliness is profitable unto all things. It's profitable or valuable unto all things. It's as if he had said that it's profitable or beneficial unto us in every way. And so I asked this morning, uh, do we think of godliness in that way? Do you and I as Christians think really think of godliness as being that important and being that helpful to us in our lives? How or in what way is godliness profitable unto all things? Paul tells us in the text in verse 8, he says, it holds, it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, what does that mean? This means, Calvin says, that the man who has godliness lacks nothing. Godliness is, he says, Calvin writes, godliness is the beginning, the middle, and the end of Christian living. And where it is complete, there is nothing lacking. It means that we will, by the grace of God, know the blessings of God in our lives. Now, this is not about merit. Anytime we talk about works or effort in the Christian life, I think we, we tend to start thinking or imagining that we're talking about earning something or meriting something from God. Um, that's not what Paul's talking about here. All of this has got the gospel of Christ as its context. It's, it's about God crowning his own gifts and graces in us. God crowns his own gifts and graces in us. In other words, what he's worked in us, he also is pleased to reward us by his grace. It's about God graciously rewarding the sincere yet imperfect obedience of his redeemed children in Christ. You know, there is an entire chapter, I'll point you to it on your own time, your own study. There's an entire chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith on good works and how God is pleased to reward the good works of his children and that even that is by his grace. It's not about 
earning anything, and we should not be ashamed or afraid to speak of these things the way that Scripture does or the way that our confession often does. And think about this, you know, think about what Paul says in back in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. He says uh, that the commandment to honor our father and our mother, which is what, it's the fifth, the fifth commandment, uh, he says the commandment to honor our father and our mother is Ephesians 6, 2, the first commandment with a, with a promise. And that the promise is what? Long life in the land that God has given you. Now, in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus uh, chapter 20, for example, that's the way the promise is explicitly written. That you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. They hadn't entered the promised land yet, but in Ephesians 6, what does Paul do? Paul doesn't say, hey, you know, that was Old Testament stuff. That doesn't belong to us. We are not obviously promised the literal land of Israel uh, in our day. But what he does do is he takes the part of the promise that applies to us. God is not giving us, he has not promised us, you know, American Christians in the 21st century, uh, the land, that, that particular promised land. We have a greater promised land, that of heaven. But what he does promise us is long life in the land. What land? The land that where you happen to be, wherever you are as Christians, he promises long life. Uh, not in a, a mechanical sense, not in every case kind of sense. It doesn't mean that some Christians don't die younger. But he's promising a blessed life in this life on the basis of that. It's, it's God giving us a promise uh, of reward to encourage us in following him in obedience. God has promised blessing upon his people for godliness and for following him, and he always has. You know, you think of Psalm 84. We read that last uh, last Lord's Day as our call to worship. Uh, Psalm 84, it says, uh, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. Verse 11, The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's not name it and claim it. That's not prosperity gospel. But it, God does tell us all through his word that he... He doesn't withhold good things from those who walk uprightly before him. How many of you have known the Lord for a number of years and, and you, you have known firsthand in many ways, and it's not just outward blessings, but God has blessed you in many ways because by his grace in your following of him. He rewards the good works of his children like any good father, any good parent does to encourage their children in doing what is right and what is pleasing in their sight. And so, you know, Paul certainly does not mean necessarily health, wealth, and material prosperity. Uh, many of us who are, have been ill lately can attest to that. Uh, but in general, how many of us have known uh, so many more days of health and God's blessing uh, by his kindness and grace? And again, it's not, this is not about a prosperity gospel. What does Paul tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.6? 6? He says that godliness with what? Contentment is great gain. Kind of a, a, a strong way of putting it. He's saying godliness with contentment. The very idea of contentment means that we're not always looking after more and more material things and prosperity necessarily, but that having godliness with contentment is great gain. That God might work in us to think just like Paul does in that regard. Now, God most certainly is pleased to both bless and reward the sincere yet imperfect obedience and good works of his people who are justified freely by his grace in Christ. And that is true both in this life as well as in the life to come. God often rewards and blesses us in this life as we're following him. 
And certainly the greater blessings are those which are to come and the greater rewards are in the future as well. And, and that is true not just for pastors and elders, but for every believer in general. And so let us, by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, let us learn to train ourselves unto godliness, being fully convinced that God is well pleased to bless such godliness, to make us well equipped by it for every good work to which he has called us. To him be the glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.